Well, good morning, Redemption. My name's Nolan. I have the pleasure of reading our passage this morning. So if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to Psalm 117. If you happen to grab one of those black Bibles on your way in, you can find today's passage, page 511. Again, it's Psalm 117. You guys, just a moment to turn there. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This is God's word for us today. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Those words were written over 30 years ago now, in 1993, by a man named John Piper. And uh, in 1993, these words were written into the very first paragraph of Piper's monumental work on missions. Uh, Let the nations be glad is the name of that book. And this pastor's words have served the church, acting as kindling that has stoked a white-hot blaze in the hearts of an entire generation, and has resolved to bring more light and warmth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to nations and people groups all over the world, including, I'm sure, many of us here who have read that book and benefited from John Piper's ministry. These words from Piper reflect the text that we're in this morning. Missions exists because worship doesn't is a great summary that hum, uh, humanly helps us understand this divine directive from God right here in Psalm 117. It's a directive that is cyclical in the sense that worship motivates mission and mission motivates worship. So if you haven't already, turn with me uh, in Psalm 117. It's just two verses, but man, it is packed full of things. If you're new to reading the Bible, the large number in the Bible is the chapter. The small numbers are the verses. And let me just read this passage over us again so we can hear it a few times in our time together. Again, it says, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It's such an understated set of verses with massive implications for God's work in this world. And as we get acclimated to this short text right here from the outset, just want to give you three bullet points that will help us to get to know our Bibles better, uh, will help us to get to know uh, this, this chapter a little bit better. So here they are, three things to know about Psalm 117. First is this, Psalm 117 is a song. 
In fact, all the Psalms are songs, aren't they? Uh, Whenever we open up the book of Psalms, it's like opening up an ancient hymnal. And in a similar way that we sing songs of worship, like we did this just morning, uh, these Psalms were sung by Israel in praise to God. Secondly, Psalm 117 is a song of praise. 117 is tucked in to a larger section from Psalm 113 to 118, and that's known as the Hallel Psalms. And each of these Hallel Psalms from 113 to 118 prioritize and they emphasize praise. And interestingly enough, in the book of Matthew, it tells us that at the conclusion of the Last Supper, during the Jewish Passover, after dinner, Jesus and his disciples gathered together and they sang a hymn before they departed to the Mount of Olives. Do you know what psalms they were singing before they uh, were heading to essentially Jesus' crucifixion? These psalms right here from Psalm 113 to 118. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of the psalms that Jesus was singing that night before he was crucified, he calls all nations and all peoples to praise the Lord for his great love. It's pretty sweet. So Psalm 117 is a song. Psalm 117 is a song of praise. Here's the third little bullet point. Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm in the songs. Okay, coming in just two verses right here. 117 is not only the shortest psalm in all of the Psalter, of the 150 chapters of the the book of Psalms, but it's actually the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. It's a good good chapter for in between Christmas and New Year's, right? (laughs) You know, like we, like we say, the, the best gifts come in small packages, right? This is, this is one of those types of packages right here. This small psalm proclaims and displays a mighty God who is worthy to be praised as this psalm's author, but also as this psalm's fulfiller. And if we were going to say it in a sentence, the big idea of Psalm 117 is this. All God's people are called to praise him forever because he is globally glorious. How is this so? To understand 117, we're gonna break this text down in three main ways this morning, which is gonna serve as our outline. Hopefully this is pretty simple. We'll see first point one, the call to praise, coming from verse one. Then point two, the cause for praise, there in verse two, A through B. And then point three, the concluding praise from two, B through C. So let's start here. Number one, the call to praise for all nations and to all people. Look back at the text. According to this text, what are we called to do? You can see that verse word there in the, in the psalm. We're called to praise. We are called to praise who? Well, just those first three words of the psalm are super clear. We're called to praise the Lord, right? Anytime you see the Bible, in the Bible you see the words praise the Lord, we should see this as a summons from the king himself. I mean, so often we are so flippant with uh, the way that we use these three words. Ah, oh, praise the Lord, you know? We can use it in so many different flippant ways, but what, what, we're, what we're seeing here when we see the words praise the Lord, we should see that as an invitation to adoration. The call to praise the Lord is an opportunity for the expression of God's people to articulate our worship and adoration to him. So before we move any further, let's just consider the the significance of those first three words, praise the Lord. Praise is a type of worship, right? The Hebrew word for praise, hallelujah, is very familiar to us. 
uh, praise is simply a worshipful, joyful expression of the worth that God ontologically contains. Praise as worship is the joyful expression of the worth that God ontologically contains. And that's why we're gathering here this morning, right? We gather together each Lord's Day to praise God together by reading the Bible, by preaching the Bible, by praying the Bible, by singing the Bible, by seeing the Bible in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If, if missions exist because worship doesn't, here's the thought-provoking question for you all as a church body. How should the overarching goal of worshiping Christ here at Redemption Church change the ways your church engages in mission? Mission actually starts here, in these moments, together, first and foremost. How about the word the, or maybe even to make it a little bit more clear, the, right? The word the, praise the Lord, speaks to the exclusivity, exclusivity of who God is, right? There is one true eternal God, amen? One worldwide people united for one way of salvation through the work of one Savior alone. We enter into this work by faith, and it's open to all on the same exact terms. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the message of Psalm 117 is one God for one people united under the lordship of one Savior. And then just look how God has revealed himself to his people. He has revealed himself exclusively and personally. He is the Lord. Praise the Lord exclusively and personally. Anytime you see the letters, capital L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, that's indicative of God's personal covenant name. Biblical scholars call this the tetragrammaton. Tetra, four, right? Tetragrammaton. And uh, in the Hebrew Bible, this tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is referenced 6,828 times in the Old Testament. And most notably in Exodus 3, 14, when uh, Moses asks, well, who should I say sent me to the people? And God just simply says, I am who I am. I mean, that's encapsulated right there, that idea of who the Lord Yahweh is. He is the only self-existent, self-sufficient being in the universe. Only God exclusively has life in and of himself. And God's personal covenant name is reflective of his being as a personal covenant God to us. That's why he's worthy of praise. All of that just from those first three simple words, praise the Lord. Now look back there again at verse one. God not only invites us to praise, but he also calls us to extol him. You see that there? To extol him is to praise God enthusiastically and, and to praise him highly. It's about uh, lifting him up, esteeming him highly, raising up who God is, exalting him, right? Elevating him to his proper place. Extolling God is like kind of like grabbing all the pieces of his attributes of who he is and kind of uh, bringing all of those things together and then taking those and lifting those up as high as we possibly can to declare who he is and what he has done for us. That's what extolling actually looks like. What the first few words of this psalm is getting at is simply a grand invitation to express to Almighty God the totality of who he is and what we have seen him do. So think about this for a moment in your own life. 
as we gather here together in the last hours of the last day, in the last month, of the last year, as you reflect on 2023, do you have some things worth praising God for? Think about that for a moment. Maybe in the hustle and bustle of the season, and uh, just the reality of coming to the end of a, a calendar year, you haven't taken the time to slow down enough to think about, is God worthy of some things? Is he worth praising for what he's done in you personally, in your family perhaps, in your church this past year? I mean, I don't even know, were you guys even meeting here in this building this time last year? No, right? I mean, that's worthy of praise to see what God has done. Uh, how about just with some other believers around you to just grab a few people and encourage each other over the next few weeks, just talk a little bit more about what God is worth praising for to you. So, so often our conversations can just kind of dwindle down so quickly into discouragements or discontentments. How about instead converse upon the things that are praiseworthy? So, so one challenge for us as you think about uh, today and before you see the ball drop down tonight, right? Perhaps even over your conversations uh, at lunchtime, even ask your kids. Tell someone close to you, you know, what God is worth praising for from this past year. Psalm 117 is instructing and inviting us to live lives that place a priority on praise from beginning to end. So if you don't have a New Year's resolution, here's your resolution. I will prioritize praise in 2024, thanks to Psalm 117. Okay, now surprisingly, we're still here in verse one. We just looked at what we are supposed to do in praising and extolling the Lord, but also notice this, who? Who are the ones that are called to praise? You can see that there in verse one, the call to praise is for all nations and all people. Do you see that there? All nations and all people. Uh, in other words, all of the Gentile people. Again, this was originally written to, to the Israelites, right? And uh, as I was kind of reading over this uh, this week, I was reading aloud, as I typically do as I prepare, and my seven-year-old daughter said, I used the word Gentiles, and then she was like, you know, watching a show or something in, in the other room, and she said, Dad, what's a Gentile? <laughs> and I was like, well, if my kid asked it, maybe I should put it in the sermon. If you don't know what a Gentile is, this is referring to exactly what this is. All nations and all peoples, all non-Jewish peoples by ethnicity would be considered Gentiles. And isn't this interesting? Embedded right here in Psalm 117, why would the Hebrew scriptures and a psalm commonly used by the Israelites in worship of Israel's God have such an inclusive invitation for all nations and all peoples to praise him? Why is that? Correct me if I'm wrong, but early on in the story of the Bible, didn't God uniquely make a covenant specifically with Abraham to elect a specially chosen people as his covenant people? So then how and why in this scripture here, seemingly exclusive to Israel, why is there a call for the inclusion of all nations and all peoples into the worship of Israel's God? The answer to that is actually in our understanding of the study of what's called biblical theology. This passage sits in the place, not only in the middle of your Bible, but in the middle of redemptive history where this passage looks back, but it also looks forward, it looks ahead. This Psalm looks back to God's earliest intentions to redeem a people who were lost and broken in their sin. But this Psalm also looks ahead to God's ultimate fulfillment 
through Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so if you're familiar with the storyline of scripture, you know that Yahweh is a creator God, but all of creation, including humanity, uh, fell from a state of perfection because of Adam's sin. And the fallout was massive. But God showed his gracious nature and his kindness to a broken creation time and time again, even as early as chapter three in the book of Genesis. Then in Genesis chapter 12, one through three, God establishes this covenant with Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew people. But also, one aspect of this Abrahamic covenant was that God's promise came through Abraham and in so doing, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Here God promises to eternally keep every single promise of that covenant to all who would place their faith in him. And so through Moses leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and receiving the commandments of the covenant that God made to Israel, through the Davidic covenant God made with King David, through the preached witnesses of the prophets speaking of this eventual new covenant that was to come, at every single turn in God's plan throughout the Old Testament, the scripture tells us of the love that God has for his creation. And that included all nations and all peoples, just like we see here in this psalm. All of that culminated into this plan of salvation that God was in the process of working out. And of course, all of this culminates in what you've begun studying in the book of Matthew just over the last couple weeks, right? And in the rest of the Gospels, Matthew 1 speaks of the fact that the blessing of the Gentiles was actually fulfilled in the coming of the Redeemer King, where Jesus is described as the son of David, son of Abraham. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? Yeah, I listen to your sermons all the time. (laughs) So all of history is pointing then to his story. All of the Old Testament with the covenants and the sacrificial system, the priests, the prophets, and yes, even Israel's failure to follow God into their calling to be a light to the Gentiles, all of that was part of God's plan, sovereign plan to save. And all of those covenants point to the new covenant in and through Christ's blood as he absorbs the law's curse for sin and pours his spirit out on all of those who would believe. That's a massive, massive reality. And the good news of the gospel for all peoples and all nations is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And at the time period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back to the Father, he gathers his disciples together in Matthew 28, but he also by implication is communicating these things to us as disciples of Christ as well, and he commissions them to go to all the world, all nations, all peoples, every tongue, tribe, and nation indiscriminately And he tells them to preach the gospel, preach the good news to all peoples, making disciples of all nations, marking those disciples out by baptism, and then gathering those maturing disciples together into local churches so that more multiplication of this great commission and its message can be advanced in this world. That is why you are sitting in your seat today. It's incredible to think about that. It's wild when you think about just this little psalm here that it actually finds its fulfillment in the New Testament church. Though it was originally written to the Jewish people, this psalm is not limited only to them. This psalm reveals that the love and the plan of God always included many of us Gentiles, just like you and me, and just as God had promised. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, he quotes this exact psalm in, uh, in Romans 15, 11. 
to urge those early Jewish Christians to welcome Gentile Christians into the church as full members of the body of Christ. And while initially God sent Paul to the Gentiles as an apostle to, to, to proclaim this good news of the gospel, do you know who he sends today? He sends us, the church. He sends the church into all the world to preach the gospel. So if you're taking notes and you like to jot things down, write this down. The mission of the church is missions. And the mission of missions is the church. The mission of the church is missions, and the mission of missions is the church. Do you guys have a redemption uh, missions program here? Do you guys have a missions program? Do you have a department, an entire department, dedicated to missions here? No? Okay. And why is that? Because we are the missions department, right? We are the ones who are to be on mission. If the mission of the church is missions, and the mission of missions is the church, I'm thrilled to hear of the work that you guys are doing. I mean, honestly, I've been praying, Grace and I have been praying for you guys for years before we, anybody even knew who were going to be in this room together and a part of this membership. It's incredible to see all that God has done in each of you in just a few years, right? I mean, I'm thinking about uh, just five years. You know, like if you look at a five-year-old child, they're just a kindergartner. There's not much that they're capable of. They still got to need help brushing their teeth, all that. So you guys are just a five-year-old and you're doing so many like university level things already. You guys are about to plant a church. I mean, I know churches that have been in existence for decades that have never planted one single church. So praise God for that effort through Pastor Greg and what you guys hope to do in the next year or so. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Matt Schmucker, who's a fellow elder at Capitol Hill, is going to be here with you guys in February. And he's representing a ministry called Good Churches, which is seeking uh, to extend missional endeavors in probably one of the most uh, persecuted places on the globe and probably will be the most persecuted uh, for Christians in our generation in India, working with a brother named Harshit Singh in Lucknow. I mean, that's an incredible effort that you guys are part of. I know you're part of uh, Simeon Trust workshops in India as well. I mean, you guys are on the tip of the spear as far as some missional advancement, and I praise God for that. In all of this, I'd encourage you to think about missions through the grid of quality over quantity quality over quantity. If God wants all peoples to praise him in quantity, what part can redemption and you individually play in this concerning quality? Are you praying regularly for missionaries and mission endeavors? Are you uh, able to pray perhaps more fervently in your private devotions or your family devotions, right? As a church, how can you be asking the Lord to do some things, praising him for the things he's already done, and asking that he would use you to extend the gospel even further to all nations and all peoples? Do you know what people groups are around you, in your neighborhood, or at work? What steps can you take to think a little bit more uh, specifically about cross-cultural missional engagement? Here's the reality. Our, Our mission has been established, but it has not been accomplished. So so let me encourage you as a church, in your family, as an individual, to keep stretching, keep sending, keep doing hard things, keep doing things that are a bit uncomfortable, and keep growing in this area of faithfulness as you extend yourselves on mission together. And one more encouragement for you guys, especially as you think about 2024. Seek to pursue missions with joy. Do it with joy especially as you think about this future church plant, 
What a great opportunity to see the church united together joyfully in action, but here's a caution in the midst of that encouragement. Church plants can be a time where the enemy uses to cause much disunity and much animosity. Have you ever been around some Christians who do missions without joy? It's miserable. Ugh. Have you ever seen a church plant a church begrudgingly, you know, and not with joy? Ugh. It's the exact opposite of what God desires for us. It will be very, very important for your church and any future churches that you may plant, any future missionary endeavors that you support and get behind, it will be very important to pursue these things to the end of missional multiplication with joy. So now back to this text here in Psalm 117. This is, of course, a global invitation for all nations to praise the Lord there in verse one, and then it gives way to a grand explanation of why we should praise there in verse two. Do you see it? Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Why? Verse two, for great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So number one, the call to praise all nations and all peoples. Here's point two, the cause for praise. What is the cause for praise? His steadfast love and his faithfulness. If verse one covers the what and the who of praising the Lord, then verse two gives us the reason why we should praise the Lord. What are the reasons for verse two, for such exalted praise in verse one? You can see the answer to that right there. The word for is written there. For, for why? For great The reason why we are called to praise is because of the greatness of the abundant nature and character of God's attributes. Which attributes? Well, namely two that are here. You can see them there. The ESV says his steadfast love and his faithfulness. These are two direct and distinct attributes of God, but they're actually quite commonly put together. uh, And they're referenced in relation to each other many times. uh, Four different times here in the Psalms at least once in the Old Testament in in Numbers, and and most notably in the famous description of God's self-revelation in Exodus 34, 6. And how are these attributes of God experienced? They are, as the text says, great. They are great, meaning that they are strong and mighty, the attributes of God, even overpowering us, like the way that God's wrath prevailed over the floodwaters that covered the earth in Genesis. Uh, like the way that God's grace prevails over our sin, like the way that God's mighty mercy prevails over our deepest shame, like the way that God's faithful, committed love never, ever has an end. My daughters and I and my wife, we love to do our devotional times together as a family right after dinner. So if we sit down for dinner, the expectation is we're gonna clear the plates and then we're gonna read like a storybook Bible together. And we had been reading over the course of some time the Jesus Storybook Bible if you're familiar with that. It's a great little resource uh, to, uh, to disciple your kids with. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, there's this refrain over and over, kind of expressing what we're seeing here in Psalm 117, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and on and on in the Old Testament, it refers to this in this story Bible. It says, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though God's children would forget him and even run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always 
and long for him like little lost children yearning for their home. I think I'm discipling my kids and this little storybook Bible is discipling me, you know? My wife and I, we're like, oh my gosh, what a quote. It's just so good. It's like so humbling, you know? We're getting broken down by a, a children's Bible. But man, all truth is God's truth. This is how we see God's steadfast love and faithfulness. It never stops, it never gives up, it unbreak, it's unbreaking, it's always and forever kind of love. Now look back there in verse two. Who is this steadfast love and faithfulness directed to? What does the text say? It says it's directed toward us. Us, there we are again. All nations, all peoples equals us there. We find ourselves in this passage. Love and faithfulness of God, mercy and truth. It's been first pledged to Israel, but now it's been provided for us as Gentiles and it opens up a way of salvation to all who would believe in it. And notice this textual interplay You can see it really well in your Bible. The beginning of the sentence says for, and the end of just that line before the comma says us. There's just beautiful interplay here between the words for and us. And when you grasp what he has done for us, you will see that God alone deserves our allegiance too. So this morning, on the the last day of the year, do you realize what Christ has done for you? Can you comprehend the great sacrifice that he offered up when he gave himself to die on behalf for your sin? Maybe you're here this morning and you're familiar with Christ and his church, but you don't know Christ in a saving way. You're not known in a local church community like redemption here. You might be thinking, well, if Jesus did this for me, then I kind of feel obligated to do some things for him in order to attain salvation. Well, the reality is is a relationship with God is not about you doing things for God. It's all about what God has done for you in and through Christ. Religion says do, but Jesus says it is done. So if you're thinking this, ah, if Jesus did this for me, then maybe I should do something for him. Let me just pry into those feelings of indebtedness just for a moment to encourage you to hear and believe the truths of the gospel today. Hear it and believe it. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the only true God, the just and gracious creator of the universe, has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin. And through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, He showed his love, but also his power over sin and death through his resurrection from the grave so that now everyone, all nations and all peoples, everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation as their Lord and as their Savior will be reconciled to God forever. That's the gospel. And yes, this gospel is for all nations and all peoples because all have sinned and have fallen short of God's perfect glory. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are at enmity with God. And in order to be reconciled to this holy God, you have to accept Christ personally and individually as the only mediator between a holy God and you as a sinful person. So how do you accept that gospel for yourself? You do so through faith and repentance. In other words, you do that from 
turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Your good work, your religious traditions, your spiritual effort, your turning to false saviors, all of those things cannot save you. The only thing that will save you is turning to and trusting in Christ. A God who has been steadfast in his love and his faithful love in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So on behalf of those in this room who have believed this, if you don't know this Christ, we would encourage you to be reconciled to God. And if you don't know how to start, just talk to the person that brought you here today. Talk to, talk to Pastor Danny or one of the other pastors here of this church. Come and talk with me. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to turn and trust in Christ today. So to recap then, the, the call to praise all nations and all peoples. Number two, the cause for praise, his steadfast love and faithfulness. And point three, the concluding praise, the presence of of persistent praise forever. You can see there at the very end of this psalm, it concludes just as it began, bookended with a repetitive, rousing request to, call, to recall yet again the calling of the Christian to praise the Lord. You might think to yourself, didn't we just read this like at the beginning of the passage? Like, I think we got the drift, God, right? You know, I mean, why do, what, what's the point of the repetition? What's going on here? Like, does it really need to be repeated again? Well, no, of course not. It doesn't need to be repeated again. But actually, yes, it does. <laughs> you know, there are no words wasted with God, amen? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in um, 1800s London, said it like this. He said, praise him, all you people, and having done it once, do it again. And do it still the more fervently, daily increasing in the reverence and zeal by which you extol the Most High. That's why it's there. Why are we called again to praise a second time? Because we so easily forget. That's why. It only takes us two verses to forget. So we should praise. Praise, praise, praise all the time. But I also think praise the Lord is there a second time to remind us that God's mighty love and faithfulness is great in its depth in and through Christ, but it's also great in its duration reaching all the way, as it says here in this passage, his faithfulness endures, you see the word there? Forever, right? Forever. Like Squince Palidorus in the Sandlot. Forever, right? The faithfulness of the Lord lasts forever. Praise the Lord is repeated here again to underscore this reality that true faith in God results in the choice of ongoing declarative praise to him. How encouraging is that reality as you think about 2024? Hear it again afresh today. God's faithfulness to his people endures forever. Oh, those who are redeemed by Christ know of that love. They know it and they praise God for it, they choose to praise God for it, both now and forevermore. And here's the great reality. When we begin our praise of the Lord here on this side of eternity, the praise that we begin now reverberates into all of eternity forever. How can this be? As we mentioned earlier, Psalm 117 looks backward, but it also looks forward. So what God excuse me, what passes as God promises, God promises to bring to pass. What passes as God promises, God promises to bring to pass. 
These attributes of God's love and faithfulness and salvation do not belong only in the past. They're witnessed to and attest in the past, yes, but because of his faithfulness in the past, we also see God's love and faithfulness extends both ways, even into the future as well, into the new year of 2024, but even more significantly, into the new heavens and the new earth. What's described here in Psalm 117 will eventually be fulfilled in the new Jerusalem as a heavenly choir composed of blood-bought sinners from all peoples and all nations praise their Lord and Savior for all of eternity, fulfilling this global vision laid out right here in Psalm 117. When we begin our praise of the Lord here on this side of eternity, the praise that we begin now will reverberate forever. How do we know this? The Bible tells me so. (laughs) We read of these future reverberating realities in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7. It says this, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And it also says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. At the end of all things, praise will have the final word. Because God's faithfulness and loving kindness will endure forever, so should and so will our praise. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your steadfast and faithful love towards us. And Father, as undeserving sinners, we extol you highly for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. May we, in this new year, may we love Jesus more fully. May we know him more completely. Father, would you cause us to follow Christ more closely? Lord God, as we Uh, go from here, use us as missionaries. Use us as ministers of reconciliation and messengers to more excellently proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would use us. Use Redemption Church. Use any future church plans to ensure that heaven would be more populated as a result of our lives and our ministries. So Father, bless these endeavors as we seek to bless you in lives that are befitting of people who praise. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of these things. Amen.